Good morning, everyone. Matthew back at it again with Medics Money Triage, the sideshow on Medics Money, where we take some of the bigger episodes from the main podcast and we condense them down a little bit just for you. This week, we're going to be covering episode 62 of the main podcast, which aired on September the 28th, 2021. And it was entitled Early Retirement Strategies for Doctors, guest starring Tom Skinner from Barnaby Cecil. And so today, we're going to think about some of the main things you need to think about when thinking about your own retirement. So without further ado, here's the first clip. And it's all about how the NHS pension can actually be all a part of your plan to obtain financial independence. We at Medics Money are always getting questions about FIRE, so financial independence, retire early, and we've done loads of podcasts on that before. And we were just talking before we came on as well that you are getting loads of inquiries from doctors about retiring early, which is a shame in some ways for the NHS, but probably reflects the current reality. So I thought it'd be really useful to talk about how the NHS pension interacts with a desire to retire early, because I think the NHS pension is an amazing fire tool, and I'm all in on fire, and I'm all in on the NHS pension, but it's not my only retirement strategy. So it'd be really interesting to talk about that. But do you want to just say a bit about what you've noticed recently about people retiring or leaving? Yeah, I think so. two aspects to that. One is the sort of senior consultants and GPs within the profession are looking at ways to yeah, change their work-life balance and either retire and return on a different contract or a different format or looking to retire and do something completely different. I think a lot of the surveys that are run by the BMA are there to create an angle within the press sometimes. And the reality, in my experience, when I talk to doctors on a day-to-day basis, is that there are a range of reasons they're looking to retire early. It's not because of any annual allowance or lifetime allowance taxation. That There are other reasons, such as, yeah, just wanting to get a bit more out of out of their working week. And obviously, the pandemic has put a lot of people under a tremendous amount of pressure, and they're sort of perhaps viewing it from that prison. Yeah, it's definitely multifactorial. I don't want to retire early yet, but I'm pretty young, to be honest. But uh, I do not work full time in the NHS. And for me, that has meant that my career is more sustainable. The demands of working in the modern NHS full time are really tough. So yeah, that's where I'm at. For this next clip, we're just going to cover some of the benefits from different schemes of the NHS pension. So just for a really quick recap, the 1995 scheme of the NHS pension, the retirement age is 60, unless you've got a mental health officer or a special class status. The next scheme is the 2008 scheme, for which the retirement age is 65. And last but not least is the 2015 scheme, which I'm imagining most people will now be on. And that is linked to state retirement age and could also increase on the government's whim. You know, a lot of times we get questions basically saying, I'm a 35, 40-year-old doctor and I want to fire, so should I just leave the NHS pension? And I think the reason people think about leaving is because they think that they can't get the pension until they retire or some other misconception. So should we just start talking a bit about the normal retirement age and the minimum retirement age in the legacy and the 2015 schemes and how that might be relevant? Because I think it's important that people realise when they can take their benefits in the various schemes yeah so just on that point in terms of uh, yeah, people retiring early we're getting lots of inquiries certainly more than we ever did of people who are looking at the difference between working in the nhs and working in the private sector so this is either going go, you know validating and then doing a lot more private work or going into pharma asking us to calculate 
what their benefit package needs to be to create parity within the NHS or parity to the NHS pension, which can be done and is a complex sort of calculation. But what that's done for us is help us to understand then how to shape those two different retirement strategies to meet somewhere in the middle. And essentially, you're dealing with a greater requirement for capital in the private sector versus less capital and more guaranteed income, but within that, some constraints. So you get all the benefits of a guaranteed income, but it isn't as flexible as creating a variable capital amount that gives you then more flexibility as to when you turn that income on and off and um, can combine it with, with private income or income from a range of sources. I love that. I think that's a really important point that what you're saying basically is that NHS is a guaranteed index linked, so inflation proof income for life, right? And that sounds really nice and is really nice. But the downside is that it does have some restrictions, which we'll get into talking about and then versus a private sort of scheme, which is, you know, essentially, you're going to need to pay more for the same benefits. And correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, but you're going to need to pay more for the same benefits, but you might it might be a bit more flexible. Is that a fair? Have I got that right? Yeah, you're going you're to have to put more money the into into somewhere where you're creating a pot of capital, which is going to have a variable amount, it, the amount that it increases each year is going to vary. It is going to require some oversight, skill and due diligence to select a range of funds and investments within that portfolio. And so there is uh, less certainty. And the risk of that scheme is then sits on the shoulders of the scheme member because it's their retirement scheme, their own individual retirement fund, versus the all those decisions taken away run by the actuaries who manage the NHS pension scheme. But additionally, and not everybody who comes and asks us to perform those calculations then decides to go and work in the private sector. They just want to shape the two. But listening to those that have then gone and worked in the private sector, you know, it really is sort of chalk and cheese in terms of comparing the work environment. So there's more things to consider than just the pension. If you work in the NHS and if you work um, for, a, you know, you go to a hospital, very rarely do you see somebody once they reach the consultant stage change hospitals. So you get somebody who's worked, you know, 26 years at the same hospital and therefore, you know, there, there is an element of structure to that working week, which means you just, you turn up for work and you get on with the job. And there's many things, there's lots of things in within that job that are difficult and dynamic and changing, but the framework within that job changes. Whereas there's no necessarily, it's very unlikely that you'll be made redundant. And it's very unlikely that there'll be some kind of sort of departmental change in direction that means you're no longer required or the working conditions or not working conditions but the working direction of whatever it is you were being given let's say that if the if the pharma company was pumping a lot of money in a certain direction of research and you were involved in that then that could change at some point in the future so it is a very different world to working in the public sector and, and pensions would be one of the reasons why you know, people might be considering making comparison, but there's a lot. There's a lot of other factors in there to consider also. Clip three is all about erbos and some ways that you can top up the pension. And one point I found particularly interesting was the kind of amount of capital you'd need in the private sector to kind of match the benefit of the NHS pension. And it surprised me. I think it's in the clip, but Tom said two to three times you need in the private sector. Mind blowing stuff. 
We do get quite a few questions, actually, you know, in our team inbox asking us, should I leave the NHS pension? And of course, as always, we can't give advice on something like this. You really, really need to see a professional. But all we can say is that it is still a good deal in our humble opinions. But please, please, please consider your circumstances really carefully. Hi, Matthew here, and I've got under a minute to tell you five reasons to check out what medical school doesn't teach us. A podcast by Medics Money for med students at F1 Doctors. Number one. Investing early. Find the true power of starting as early as possible and getting towards financial freedom. Number two, improve that credit score. You'll be very likely surprised at what can actually impact your credit score. But don't check it out just yet as I've still got three reasons why you should check out MSDTU. Number three, moving to Australia and beyond. What? Number four, entrepreneurs from across the world of medicine from Beyond Health Tomorrow to EGP Learning who are changing the game. Number five, your own well-being. Because seriously, what's more important than that? You can find all these episodes and more on your podcast player of choice. Search for what medical school doesn't teach us or find the Medics Podcast Network. 47 seconds. Boom. To those of our listeners that are interested in having a side hustle, earning extra money is extremely easy and stress-free with today's podcast sponsor, Sermo. Sermo is a social media platform only for doctors that, among other things, offers paid medical surveys tailored to your area of expertise and which you can take from the comfort of your own home or on the go. What's more, you'll be able to connect with 1.5 million members worldwide, get second opinions and keep up to date on medical news. All for free. You can join now at sermo.link forward slash medics money. That's sermo, S-E-R-M-O dot link forward slash medics money. Hope to see you on there. And seek the advice of a professional before you do anything. So let's just say you were a 35, 40-year-old doctor and you're interested in pursuing an element of fire or maybe just FI, right? Who wouldn't want FI? I want FI. I don't yet want to retire early, but like I said, it's early days. What would you sort of say to them to think about? Because as I said, lots of people say, I'm fire, so I'm not going to do the NHS pension. I'm just going to do private pension. And I'm interested to hear what you would sort of say to some 35, 40-year-old who wants to FI. So the whole fire movement came off the back of a book called Your Money or Your Life, which was written in 1992 by Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez. It went very quiet and nobody picked it up. And then there was a sudden movement about six or seven years ago, and it was people who read the book that then developed the FIRE movement, and so through reading the sort of teachings of this book. And the simplest way to describe it is imagine people sort of tooling around in a camper van on the sort of west coast of America and, you know, living a fairly basic life without the sort of trappings that, that we all get, get used to, you know, cinema, sky sports, gym membership, and creating a lifestyle that then wasn't dependent on the sort of rat race, the nine-to-five I hate my job, but it pays the mortgage, you know, that, that sort of thing. So it was breaking away from that. So so I think the first thing to understand is that the, those, the proponents of the fire movement who, you know, who are considering retiring at, say, 35 or 40, they made massive sacrifices and were saving around at 50, 60, 70%, 80% in some cases to create a lifestyle very different from the one that you might live or we might both now live in any case. And so you're giving up a lot more to take away the requirement, yeah, to, to run in that, work in that nine to five manner. So that might mean that then you could work in a sort of what, you know, the, one of them is called a barista file where you're not required to work in the nine to five 
but you can take jobs as and when they come up, you know, almost like working in a Bristol in a, in a coffee shop. So you've got much more control and flexibility over that. So it's in some sense making a sacrifice today to create a, yeah, a lifestyle in the future that isn't dependent on the nine to five. If you're giving up, if you're giving up something and then still retire, still retiring at say 60, 65, 70, then it, I would say, what's the point? What's the point in giving up life and, you know, th- things that you might enjoy today when you're still then covering off the, the, yeah, the fact that you're planning to retire at a later date. So if you've got somebody who's leaving the NHS pension scheme, one of the issues that they've got is that the, the there's a strong possibility that the scheme then won't prov- well the NHS won't then pay into that private capital that you're saving up, so you're losing out on the employer contributions, and then that, that's a uh, an even gl- greater hurdle because the individual's got to save more than somebody who was using employer contributions in the private sector into a pension scheme, for example. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people as well get fixated on the normal retirement age in the NHS pension, which varies depending on which scheme you're in. So just to clarify, say like my retirement age is 68 in the 2015 and I buy an Erbo for three years worth, then I will be able to retire at 65 without an actually reduced pension. Because if you take your pension early, they actually reduce it, basically reduce it by a certain percentage for every year you take it early. Have I got that right? They have, yeah. So what the actuaries who sort of manage the scheme will have done in any final salary scheme is worked out to some degree how long they expect the individual to live for. And then they count back. If the individual's taken the pension five years early, they adjust the income to account for the fact that the person's had five years more income than somebody who retires at the normal date. So it isn't necessarily there to just punish and discourage somebody. It's just to make it fair. A person's had five more, potentially, all being all if they both died on the same, the same age, that person had five years more of income. And so it, yeah, it's adjusted to, to recognize that fact. So one of the things that we encourage clients to do is to look at how much money do you need to retire and at what age do you hit that figure? Because if you, if say you need two and a half thousand pounds net and you reach that at 62, then that's what you need. And maybe that's the age at which even with the actuarial reduction, that's the age to retire in the new scheme potentially. So yeah, we'd encourage people to get familiar with the actuarial reductions and start to model what income they'll expect at a certain point of time. And then you've got a base figure. So you've got, you know that you've got, let's say, you know, let's say, let's, let's say that individual knows that they've got two and a half thousand pound net coming at 62. They've got 700 pounds a month coming net at 68 when their state pension starts. And if they said, well, actually, I'd like to retire at with a net income of £3,000 a month when I'm 55, then you've got sort of blocks appearing of, of years where you need money to support that, 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 that level of income that then is alleviated when income streams come on in the future. And that's how it looks in a cash flow model when you start to build that for clients. So then you've got a capital value of, in this example of 55 that might be several hundred thousand pounds to cover each of those periods where there was no income or guaranteed income and then the income you know, comes online, and then you walk that back to the to, to where they are now, and say, well, you've got to save three hundred pounds a month or whatever it may be to achieve that. But you compare when you do those same calculations, someone in the private sector, the capital that person needs at fifty five is far greater, maybe two or three times greater than the individual with the two guaranteed incomes from the NHS pension and the state pension has, and that's the benefit of the NHS pension that you've got 
a scheme that isn't perfect because you haven't got as much control over as and when you take it, but there are things in there that you know that are definite and then you can build around that to resolve any problems with flexibility with saving in between. So we talked about Erbo. Do you want to talk quickly about on the theme of topping things up, buying additional years? So additional years was a way of increasing the number of years you had in the scheme by the time you retired. And the classic was somebody would leave med school at 23 and therefore the maximum they could accrue by 60 would be 37 years. And you could buy up to, uh, in that example, another three years to give you 40 years at 60. And everybody thought that 40 years was the maximum you could have in that scheme. And it wasn't. It was 40 years at 60. So you could actually go in and tag on another five years. You just couldn't have more than 40. So when you added the added years, the added years couldn't amount to more than 40 years at 60. That was replaced in, I think, 2012. It's gone now, but it's been replaced by something called additional pension. An additional pension allows you to buy a guaranteed income. And we've had, I don't know, maybe five or six of these go through now, whereby the individual can, for an amount of money, either a lump sum, which they get full tax relief on, or through taking from their monthly pay, um, up to 6,500 of, of income. And so that might suit somebody who had gaps in their employment. It might suit somebody who came to the NHS a bit later than others. But I think anybody who classic left med school, joined the NHS, and I'm planning on retiring at around about 60, might be concerned about the lifetime allowance and hitting that level if they did buy additional income. But to give you an example, somebody who bought, they bought £6,500 and they were about 35 and it cost them something like £38,000 as a lump sum, which they got full tax relief on. So you're, so they're putting some money aside to get an extra £6,500. And it worked well for them in this example because they were they were working on about a 4PA contract as a consultant. So they weren't accruing a massive amount of NHS pension. So when we sort of did the modelling for them, it was a pretty good deal for them. And so let's just say... For example, you wanted to retire, or I wanted to retire with a annual retirement income of 50 grand, right? Arbitrary number. And then I've modeled my numbers for the NHS pension scheme. And I will get that number from the NHS pension scheme at age 65. Okay. So, but I don't want to retire at 65. <laughs> Let's say I want to retire at 55. So 10 years before that, right? So what I essentially need to do is fill in that gap between 55 and 65 with something that isn't the NHS pension scheme. And you talked a bit about a SIP, a self-invested pension, and the upsides and downsides of that. I didn't use that option. And instead, I'm using something which I think is pretty underrated by doctors, which is a stocks and shares ISA. So criticize my strategy and give me some <laughs> tips on how to make a million pounds trading shares by Wednesday, please. No problem. Yeah, just follow this week's meme stock and pile in. <laughs> yeah, so so in that example in the modeling, you'd have two choices. One would be to take an actuarially reduced pension at 55 and then skim the top off your savings to meet the two in the middle or yep. take all the money from your savings and wait until your pension was not actuary reduced or the actuary reduction was less. And the financial advisor would model the two strategies and there's pros and cons of you you'd have to work out and you'd need less capital if you took the actuarially reduced pension early than you would. So, so it could affect the savings rate. But yeah, I think if you were looking to save, putting more money into 
a pension for somebody who could be reaching lifetime allowance issues or somebody who could at some point have annual allowance issues. More money into pension might not be the right thing for them. The pensions are fantastic, but if you've got a final salary scheme already and it's likely to be of high value at a later date, then it could cause you further problems. If you had if you had £300,000 in a vehicle and that vehicle could pay you can pay you an income tax-free and could grow tax-free uh, and you described it to somebody and you said it existed, then they'd think you'd made it up. Or they'd, the first thing they'd say, is this some kind of offshore tax haven? Definitely. And it's not. It's just an ISA. So yep. ISA is a fantastic vehicle. So the first thing to say about an ISA is that it's no different from any other investment account. It's just got a wrapper around it. And so you can hold uh, anything you like within the ISA. It's just that the, that it, that the vehicle itself uh, doesn't pay any tax and you can put 20000 a year in that. So that would be a fantastic uh, place to stop. Or to look at a spouse's position, and let's say you are married to somebody and they, let's say they earn £90,000 a year and they're only putting £20,000 into a pension, just to make the numbers simple, then that person would have another £20,000 before they would start to, or before within of higher rates. That person pays higher rate tax for a further £20,000 in which if you considered using your savings and transferring it across, they'd get full 40% tax relief on that as well. So it can be really tax efficient to use somebody else's position if they're a higher taxpayer as well. And then you get all the benefits of, of, of using a pension. And it's likely that they may not reach the lifetime allowance in the same way that a doctor would or somebody in the private sector with a final salary scheme. Yeah, yeah. I like that. It's a underrated trick that definitely. Uh, but just going back to what you said about the ISA, and I think it is underrated, right? And ISA, yeah, is tax free on the way in. Okay, the growth inside the ISA is tax free. And it's tax free on the way out. Okay, so like you said, if someone said that to you, that you'd think like this is going to involve uh, the Bahamas or Jersey or some other offshore jurisdiction, but it's not. It's just an ISA. You got twenty thousand limit. Uh, you, your whole family, uh, adults, both adults, got twenty thousand limit. Your kids can do an ISA. You can do a lifetime ISA. There's a stocks and shares ISA. There's cash ISAs. So ISAs are. I mean, I love ISAs because of the reasons I just outlined, and I guess it's like the opposite of the pension for me because the pension is guaranteed, inflation-linked income for life. Right, that is amazing, but it's not super flexible. Whereas the ISA depends on the whims of the stock market and whichever meme stocks uh, people buy. Which, by the way, I'm not buying any meme stocks. This is kind of the opposite, but it, the two go together quite nicely in my view. So this final clip is actually Tommy's own plan to achieve financial independence and possibly select his own retirement date. And he's actually using a stocks and shares ISA, as he'll explain. And he's using sensible wealth or investing to bridge the gap between any potential early retirement date and his state retirement age. So I've been investing for over 10 years now. I never read the Financial Times. I don't hold any individual shares. I only hold funds. And the reason for that is what Tom said, that you've got to diversify your risk. Okay, If you're all in on one dodgy pharmatech bio company, yeah, you might hit the jackpot. But if you don't hit the jackpot, that's it. Your ship is wrecked on the rocks. And if you diversify, they say diversification is the only free lunch in investing. And, and what that means is that 
If you diversify and buy lots of different stocks, some of them will do well and some of them won't do well. But on average, as you just said, if history repeats itself, then you will do well over the long term. And it always makes me chuckle when you see any regulated advisor, because on any financial promotion, it says past performance does not indicate future returns. But actually, that's what everything's based on, right? So good investing. You're diversified. You're minimizing your costs of investing. Um like Vanguard or something similar to that it's great like good investing is boring investing I don't track my invest I look at my investments once a year maybe unless something really big happens because my plan has been set and I know what the plan is I'm not going to change the plan unless something really radical happens and the other thing you said is basically that you need time okay because because the major driver of returns is compounding returns over time compound interest eighth wonder of the world according to einstein and that it needs time and it needs consistent returns it doesn't need 40 percent one year return and then minus 50 the next year it just needs a nice gentle six to ten percent roughly whatever for 20 years and you are done all right thanks again for tuning in to medics money triage i hope you found this episode fairly useful i would really encourage you to check out the full episode there's a lot more content in there regarding the dot-com bubble Financial Crisis 2008, really interesting stuff. There's something for everyone in there. It's really worth checking out. But apologies for the microphone quality this week. I had to use the old uh, headphones and they're just not as good as a normal mic. So until next week, see you later. Take care.